So therefore, we must cast down our idols. We must recognize the idolatry that is in our own hearts and bring that before the Lord. Let him expose that, repent, turn from it to find our fulfillment and fullness in him and him alone. So let's dive into idolatry, which is an odd thing for any preacher to say. Verse 5, Ephesians 5, 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And if you're following along, you're like, wait a minute, that was, not, that was misread. Well, this has been misquoted. And you've heard, you've heard plenty of sermons like this, haven't you? The fire and brimstone one is the guy with the bull, bullhorn outside of CenturyLink or Husky Stadium or T-Mobile Park uh, just proclaiming this this message, does that, does it, is he preaching the gospel? Does that sound like good news to you? If you listen, you're like, I don't know if I've, I don't know that I've heard it yet. For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral and pure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Well, that guy tends to leave out greed. I wonder why. But Paul is not fear-mongering here, so we better not take his words and twist them. They are out of context. He's not saying, if you look at pornography, you'll burn in hell. Right? That's, that's not what he's saying. In fact, he's making a contrast like he's been making throughout this letter of who we were and now who we are. Literally translated, it is all who are porneia will not inherit and and the rest. All who are, because who we are is now light in the Lord. You were dead, now you are alive. You were aliens, now you are brought near. You were orphans, now you are adopted. It's, it's It's who we are and our identity and our character. That's the contrast that Paul is making. He's not, he's not talking about those who struggle in this area of temptation, uh, whether it's sexual immorality or impurity or greed or those that fall into that. He's not even talking about habitual sin. We know Paul himself in Romans 7 says, man, I, I, I keep on doing the things that I don't want to do. I'm battling this flesh. He's not talking about that as if we need to live in fear of our eternal security because the message of the gospel is very clear on that point. For those that trust in Jesus and turn to him, they are indwelt by the Spirit. They are marked with the seal. Their future is secure. None can snatch them from God's hand. Uh, So that, that can't be what Paul is talking about. He doesn't contradict himself. The word doesn't contradict, so we need to understand the context. But he is giving a warning to the church of those that have given themselves over in these areas. Because Paul too will show us what it is to fight, to battle. He says I, and elsewhere, I beat my body. I make, I make it a slave. Like I'm, I, There's a battle going on, not just the spiritual battle, but the battle of the flesh. And I'm not going to give up on that. And he warned the Ephesians in, in chapter 4. Verse 17, he says, I say this and testify to the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Gentiles, the, the ethnics, the, the ethnic ones. He's just not the, non, the non-Jews. Now, they, it's funny because he's writing to primarily Gentiles, non-Jews. And what he's saying is Christ has saved you. Your identity is changed. Now you must no longer walk like that, no longer live like that. Put on the new life. Put off the old behavior. Put on the new life. Because here's here's who you were, and here's the warning. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. 
So they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, and to every impurity. So see, those same themes come right back into chapter 5. So the warning is don't give yourselves over. Those are they're, they're snares. They're traps of the enemy. And when you give yourselves over, the risk isn't your eternal security. You're, you're saved. You're secure. The warning, the risk is that you can become deadened, calloused, ineffective, blinded, asleep, to use the analogy he'll, he'll use in chapter 5. Awake, wake up. So that's the warning given here. And it's worth, I think, spending a moment on that. It does dovetail in with this topic this morning. So we dive into idolatry. Last week I was quite specific because Paul was, felt like it needed, some things needed to be said related to sexual morality. The word in Greek is porneia, where we get pornography. We talked about that context and we tried to bring it forward to our present context. And many responded to that. So thank you. And many are continuing to respond. What Paul says here kind of broadens the focus. Maybe you think of the lens zooming out from sexual morality, all impurity, so that's maybe the trump card, anything that is not in the character of God, and then even more broadly to greed, the greed of our heart. Amazing that he can mention greed right alongside, like that doesn't almost seems like a non sequitur, doesn't it? The warning against sexual morality, that seems pretty clear. All impurity, anything against the character of God, and greed, which is idolatry. The greed is the one he uses as the example for idolatry, but idolatry captures all of these. That's the, if, well, maybe he's zooming in. Take the zoom in to the heart. That's the heart issue. So many of these other sins are expressions. They're symptoms, but they're not the root. The root is idolatry. And no less dangerous in Paul's mind is greed than pornography, than sexual immorality. Which is interesting. Well, we would f- maybe feel the danger and the tension of sexual morality and the immorality and the effects of it. But of greed? Are we, are we so immersed in it that it's normalized? Or are we just not ready to deal with it? Or both? I remember hearing that when Pastor Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in New York City, fantastic pastor, preacher, author, uh, love so much of what he has written and done. Uh, He was preaching a series on the seven deadly sins. I'm not sure I would do that, but he would. So, you know, hard to to argue against Tim. So he and his wife were talking about which they believed. So they laid this out, right? They told the church, here's where we're going and we're going to hit all seven of these deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Whew, you think this is tough. So we're going to walk through that. He's like, so we talked to his wife. So which one do you think is going to be the least attended Sunday? We just told our church what we were doing for the next seven weeks. And and she said, I don't know, what do you think? And he said, I think lust. And so she, she thought about it and she said, I don't think so. I think greed. And he said, she was right by a long shot. The number of times I've had someone, mostly men, confess their sin of lust and pornography or sexual immorality is staggeringly higher than those who have come and confessed their love of money and their greed and their consumerism. And yet for Paul, it is equally dangerous, 
if not more so. In this context, he says, this is idolatry. Of this you can be sure. And what is he saying to the church? He's saying, wake up. Wake up. Walk into the light. Come alive. You know, when God, God by his grace, walked me and my pornea into the light, I was ignorant of the idolatry within my own heart. That's how I could say last week that I had a pornography problem and I didn't even know it. How do you not know it? Well, I wasn't looking at pornography. But the root of idolatry was there. So pornography was just a a symptom. It was ultimately an escape, a temporary escape, and that's what can become entrapping. We've been created for desire. We've been created to worship, to ascribe worth, and to find fulfillment and satisfaction. It's how we are wired. It's how we are made. And it's to be only fulfilled in God alone. The, the creator, our maker, who also loves us deeply. It's the only source of satisfaction and fulfillment. And we're created innately with that desire, that, that need. Second, secondarily, it's expressed in a need for community, one another. We cannot be alone. We simply can't. That's how we are wired. And so when, when we turn away from God, which Adam and Eve did in the garden, and we've been doing ever since. We distrust God and his promises that he is the source of, of all life, of all fulfillment. And we turn to something else, anything else, we become idolaters. We're trying to find fulfillment in something that cannot fulfill, and it cannot satisfy. The enemy where he caused that seed of doubt by twisting God's word, by reaching into their experience of something they knew of God, but then manipulating it. He said, so, so if God is really good, why, why wouldn't he let you have this tree too? This is good. So he's withholding from you. Because he doesn't want, and now he lies, right? Because he doesn't want you to be like him. They already were. They were made in his image. And they so. Well, that makes sense. He, he must, yeah, maybe he isn't good because if he would withhold, I thought he gave us everything. And they bit into it, right? So that's what, that's what he's always doing. He's always speaking lies to us that make us doubt the goodness of God, the character of God, the promises of God. God's withholding on you. And now, now that sin is rampant, that we are broken, the world is degrading, we are full of pain and suffering and loss. So then, then his lies simply say, so does God really, could God really love you? If God really loves you, this wouldn't be your experience. You, he's, not, he's not everything. He's not going to fulfill you. You've tried that. You need to turn to something else. You can't, you can't trust him. And so we turn to other things. We do it naturally and then intentionally. But God's promises are clear they're clear and they fly in the face of these lies. Paul says, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's promises are clear. It's, it's not that we don't know them, although we could know them better. It's that we don't believe them. And we turn to any other thing. Somewhere along the line, we stopped believing or we just never did. And for me, see, I had allowed 
lies to take root in my heart that I didn't even know it. Uh, and, and so I was looking for something else to fulfill a longing that only God could fulfill. And it wasn't an abandonment of Jesus. In, in one way it was, but ultimately I did love Jesus. I did fully believe. My faith didn't, didn't crumble. It, it was, it wasn't, he wasn't enough. I didn't believe he was enough. And I was longing for something else to fill that. Pornography was just readily available. It could have been any number of things. Ultimately, that's simply a mask or an escape. Now, it may be more likely it's a, for us, it's a relationship. The picture of the perfect relationship, whether that's marriage or, or kids or a relationship being restored, whether it's a certain kind of community or a sense of family being redeemed, or it's in our work, uh, our careers, or, or what we can produce. It comes in with position, affirmation, uh, you are worthy, you are good, you are enough. And so we're striving after these things. It can be in our own image, so our own fitness, our own health. But ultimately, it's at the deeper roots of finding and receiving love and affirmation and worthiness. All the things that God says you are. You are fully loved. You are fully worthy. I've created you. I've made you. I, I'm for you. I'm the source of life. And we've, we've, we just don't believe him. And we turn and say, well, I'll t- I need that too. But the, these other things seem like they're more likely to fulfill me. And we go down that path. All of them are empty. And we keep on trying to go to that well. Maybe a little bit more. Maybe a little bit different. Maybe a, the right combination. And we've turned from him. And so when that doesn't work, it's often... The, the ensnaring of sexual sins or, or alcohol or drugs or sports or anything that can kind of give us a quick high or adrenaline and feeling. We know it's empty, but it, in the moment, it feels good. And so we return to it. And then it can become ensnaring. It can become a strong hold in our life because we've given space to the enemy without bringing in confession and repentance. When a wanting, a desire becomes a need... And we need more and more of that thing to be fulfilled or to feel like we're being satisfied and yet it never, it never will. And this kind of greed can enslave us. I think that's why he speaks of greed. It's not, it's not primarily in more money. It's a greed that has become a need because we're trying to fill this emptiness and we're trying to find our source of uh, security or comfort or control. So any anything we can turn to worship and give ourselves to, and it will become our master. Paul Tripp, I quoted him last week, love Paul. Uh, This is from that that same book, Sex in a Broken World, which I recommend, but he brings it into the full context of our worship, which is why I love, love the book. He said this, only riches can deliver you from riches. In other words, only the heart satisfying riches of the grace of Jesus can protect and free you from the deceptive and dissatisfying riches of this fallen world. And God has promised his riches for us in abundance, all things, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lay this against Jesus and what he said to the woman at the well, John chapter 4. You probably know the story. If you don't, it's a good one to know. And he's speaking to this woman who is so longing and so desperate to find relationship, to find meaning, to find purpose. All she has is shame and she's hiding and Jesus draws her out. Now they're talking about getting water from this well, and he turns it into the, one of the most powerful pictures of 
of worship, I think, we have in Scripture. He says, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, this well water. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. That water that I give him will well up in him to be a spring of water to eternal life. Is that not good news? Is that not the, the, the essence of the gospel? It's the greatest news that all the things of this world that you're seeking to fulfill you and satisfy, to quench. Jesus says, I offer and you'll never be thirsty again. All the things in this world. Then, then many of those things can simply be received as good gifts because many of those things we're pursuing aren't wrong in themselves. They're wrong by what we demand of them, what we ask of them. That's what Paul Tripp says. The thing that you once desired you wanted, you soon name as a need. Now I, I need that. And once you name it as a need, it has you. The, the thing may not be the problem, but it's what you've asked of it. One of the clearest, most concise verses describing idolatry is, I think, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13. Perhaps Jesus was either thinking of Jeremiah or quoting him. He seemed to know the word pretty clearly. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people, this is God speaking through his prophet, my people have committed two evils, two primary sins. Sin is simply distrusting who God is and his promise and turning to something else. That's all sin is. It can show itself in lots of ways, but that's, that's it. The initial turn away from him, that's why repentance is turning back to him, not changing behaviors. Behaviors are, are, are secondary and tertiary things. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out, they've dug out cisterns for themselves, but they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a picture. See, a cistern, in the, for, for a desert people, they would, they would collect water wherever they could, right? Rainwater, because there often wasn't well water to be had or, or drinkable water. So rain was the cleanest source of water that they could have, especially in the desert. So they would, when it rained very, not very often, right? So they would, they would dig out the best cisterns. They would dig out of rock or hard clay so that when it rained, it would funnel down and collect and they would have a source of water, even though it could quickly become stagnant. At least it was a source of water. That's what a cistern would be. Now, that analogy is so clear. Jesus, God says, I am the source of living water. I'm not just a well. He is. He's deep. But he's, he's so deep and so powerful that he's like a fountain of living water. That water just flows continuously. Now, to a desert people, that is a striking image. To a people in Seattle, that doesn't seem that impressive. <laughs> Maybe it should. Lord, teach us that you are the fountain of living water and remind us how parched we are by the things of this world. And so the first sin, the first and greatest evil was my people turned from me, the source of living water. That's the greatest sin. They, tur- they turned away from the source of living water to wander deep into the desert and to live, to set up camp. That's the greatest sin. The second sin is Instead of returning to the source of living water, hey, you know what? Remember that spring of living water that we never had to thirst and here we are in the desert? Why aren't we there? Why don't we go back to that source? Instead of that, the second sin is, no, we can do it. We're okay. Let's dig out a cistern. Let's make a cistern so that when it rains, we'll sit and we'll wait for the rain and then we can say, look, we saved ourselves. Look what we did. 
And that's what we've been doing ever since. Instead of turning back to the source of living water, we say, I'm going to try this other thing. I'm going to see if this fulfills. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to tell everyone, look what I did. The problem is, our very best efforts, that cistern is cracked. And so any rain that does come, which was sent by God anyway, anything that does come that's good, leaks out. And all that's left at the bottom is just a little bit of muddy silt. And we're still saying, look what I've done. No, I, no, yeah, I really prefer this kind of water. Actually, look. And we're scooping it up and just sucking silt. And like, yeah, it's satisfying. Come have some. And we do that in every area of our life. Just a little bit more. Well, next time it rains, it'll be different. It'll probably hold that time. And all along, God's saying, I'm the source of living water. I'm a fountain. It's just running. Come back to me. Come. And you'll never thirst again. Turn from your idolatry. Whatever that work of your hands is, whatever you're hoping for is going to fulfill, turn from that and return to me. Is it helpful to know that Jesus was tempted to abandon God and go to the work of his own hands to do his own thing? Is it helpful to know that he was tempted by the very same things that we are, by lust, by greed, by impurity, by just giving it up, all up? Does it sound shocking? We, we see it in the desert. The Holy Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted, and Satan said, turn from all that, all that you are and all that God has said you are and all that he's called you to do. Turn and turn to me. I will give you more than you could ever imagine. The, the very same thing our world calls to us because Satan is the prince of this world. And Jesus stood firm and he resisted him in the word. He triumphed. The author of Hebrews broadens that understanding or clarifies that for us. Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest. And he's been talking about who our high priest is in Jesus. Jesus is the final fulfillment of the high priest. We don't have one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is how we know that Jesus, when he walked on earth, wasn't drawing from his divinity. He was trusting the Holy Spirit. He was walking as a man in his humanity. Because otherwise we couldn't relate to him. He's just God. Well, and praise God for what he did. But now in his life, we have hope for our life. We have one who is tempted in every way, in every respect, just as we are, yet was without sin. How did he do that? Not because he was God, because we can relate to him, but because he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit with him and he knew God's word. He knew God's promises and he believed them. It doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. He was a man. He was fully human. Trying to hold that concept is difficult, right? It's, it's a paradox for us. Two things, 100%, being one, the, the Trinitarian God, eternity, things that, uh, that just stretch our minds. It's just a placeholder. Paradox is simply a placeholder for truth. One day we'll say, oh, I got it. Right now we hold on to that in faith and praise God that we have a God that is so much bigger than us that we can go, yeah, I don't get you. I'll, I'll give my whole life to it. And I still, my mind isn't big enough for you. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the source of living water, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. While he was perfect, we are not. But his righteousness is for us. And we come to him. So just know, if you're walking through temptation, like, man, temptation, and it's heightened, I feel attacked, I feel oppressed. You're not in sin. That's the world. We're in the world. There's a spiritual battle. You can be tempted every moment and trust in the Lord for deliverance. 
He will provide a way out. The Lord does not allow us to succumb. We will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. Now, that's a, that's a misquoted verse. It's in my notes, so be careful here. But, man, that's a misquoted verse. The Lord will not give you more than you can bear, more than you can handle. That is not what the Word says. He will often give you far more than you can handle. Why would he do that? So you fall to your knees and say, Lord, I can't do it. I can't do it in my own strength. I need you. But he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You will will never be crushed under temptation. You have the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word to resist the lies of the enemy and to battle against our own flesh. That's his promise. And we draw on that. So to be free of lust, to be free of pornography, to be free of sexual sin, impurity, greed, and all the rest, it is, it is less about resisting temptation and actually more about exercising faith in who God is and what his promise says. Not fearing hell, like that bullhorn preacher would want you to fear, as much as, not that we shouldn't be, oh, that's not a, I don't want to go there, but Less that than pursuing and longing for heaven. Longing to be touched by God, to know God, heaven and earth. G.K. Chesterton, so if you're here, you maybe saw this quote, and you're like, what is that about? The man who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for God. This is one of the most striking quotes uh, I think I've, uh, I've heard in, in delivering for me in my mindset in walking out of um, a, a sexual immorality pornography. The man who knocks on the brothel doors and in fact actually looking for God, what's he looking for? He's looking to be touched by someone, to experience intimacy, to be known and to be satisfied. That is not wrong. That is a good desire. It is misplaced completely. We, we are made to long to be known and to know to experience intimacy in relationships and with God. To be satisfied. To experience pleasure. All of those things are created for us, are given to us as gifts when we misplace them. We simply prove that we are looking for God, the source, but we turn to any number of things. If we are going to be free free and we can be free it is for free it is for freedom that Christ has set you free to be free of greed to be free of sexual addiction all other symptoms of sin we must break our idols we must return to the source of living water how do we do that we we recognize and in confession we say i confess i have been working the work of my hands to dig out this best cistern and I think one day it's going to rain enough and fulfill and satisfy and I can boast in it. Whatever that thing is, whether it's your career, your picture of future security with uh, the right family, the right kids, the right place, the right everything, whatever combination that looks like. By the way, why why our world gets crumbled and crushed and especially midlife crises hit earlier in life around here and that's why depression and despair hit so so early is because we are so affluent here we have everything that we could have possibly thought we wanted when we were kids whether you're a dreamer or not a dreamer you've you've gotten it and it's empty it doesn't fulfill better to know that now than to chase it your entire life so it begins with a recognition and therefore confession i have turned from you the source of living water 
and turning back, a change of mind, metanoia in the Greek, and a turn, a confession, a confe- reconfessing now, I confess who you are, God, and what you've proclaimed. I believe, help me with my unbelief. But it's that turn of confession, that's repentance. Repentance is a gift, being able to turn toward the source of living water. Don't first focus on behavior. Behavior follows, but first focus on the source of living water and the promises of God. So that's a, re, a, a repentance. And then a renewal of our mind. Being able to discern the lies that we have believed from the enemy. Yeah, I, I believe I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. God has left me. God isn't for me. He's not given me enough. His promises aren't good enough. All of those lies that you might believe, it's replacing those lies, the renewal of our mind with the truth of what God says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all other things will be added to you as well. Taking God's promise to get every thought captive and turning it from the lies of the enemy to the truth of God's word, replacing. And then we rebuke the enemy because the enemy does want to bring strongholds. He does want to continue to speak lies. And we say, in the authority of Jesus, enemy, you must flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. Jesus stood firm. He spoke the truth and the enemy fled. He had to. And we have been given the authority of Jesus as his ambassadors, he is our king, so we rebuke the enemy. Not, not every temptation and not every sin is of the enemy, but he certainly wants to heighten that, and we better be aware, eyes open, of the spiritual realms in the battle. We're walking through this in our growth group. We'll get there in Ephesians 6. Stand firm then, stand firm. There is a spiritual war waging, so we rebuke the enemy, and now we replace. We replace and we receive We receive the promises of God. We receive them as having been done, that a transaction has taken place. And then we walk in the renewal, the continual renewal. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. See, the the longing, we don't don't pray against, and I I learned this pretty early on. We We don't say, God, help me with my lust. Help me not lust. Take that away. Take that desire away. So I'm telling God to, do, to take something away that he put within me. Desire. I'm saying, help me place that in the right direction. Turn my passion, my desire, my longing for you and you alone. Don't take it away. Fix my eyes on you. Remind me of who you are. Because if we would truly see him, we would love him. And though we do not see him now, we can love him and come to him. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. That's a promise. Do you hunger? Do you thirst for righteousness? Are you still working on the cistern? Another one from Trip. Last one from Trip. We'll wrap this up. Only a few, only a full and satisfied heart is free from the insanity of a ravenous heart. Say that again. Only a full and satisfied heart is free from the insanity of a ravenous heart. Only when you are eating with joy the food of the king will you quit seeking food elsewhere. You know what came to mind? You have this amazing meal. Pick your place. For me, probably steak at Daniel's. So you're coming home from Daniel's broiler, stuffed. Do you pull into McDonald's for a cheeseburger? No, but other times you drive by McDonald's, you're like, oh God, a cheeseburger would be so, it would be so good right now. But it's awful. It's empty. It's No, I don't want that. But there's a temptation. But when you're full of a beautiful steak. You're not pulling into McDonald's. Not even a question. Not even tempted by Drive right past. Laugh at it. That's how fickle we are. We must replace. We must renew. See, because of that emptiness. So if we are going to turn, we, the, the longing doesn't go away. The thirst 
turn it and fill it with the source of living water. And, and the promise is, as Paul says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Turn from the filling of other things. He uses wine as the example because that affects us, that alters us. It's an escape. It's, it's good. And too much of it, not. But don't be drunk on that. Be drunk with the Spirit is essentially what he's saying. Be so filled with the Spirit that no other earthly thing has any lure to you. Be drawn back to the source of living water. Be filled with the Spirit. This is his promise. If we confess our sins, our sin of digging out the cistern, turning away from the source of living water, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and restore to us righteousness, to cleanse us completely. That's his promise. And Jesus said, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to you who ask? How much more? I'll preach on this next week. A.W. Tozer said, my concern isn't that we, that we don't believe in the Holy Spirit. My concern isn't that we don't know how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. My concern is that we are as full as we want to be. Holy Spirit, come, fall afresh on us. We'll sing this. We did this on Tuesday nights, and we did it a couple weeks ago. This song that becomes a prayer, fall afresh on me. Holy Spirit, blow through the caverns of my soul. It's just, it's become empty with the things of this world. Blow through and fill it. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Make that a personal prayer, and then make it a corporate. Lord, blow through us. Awaken us with your Spirit. You're the only source, the only source that we could ever need. We draw to you. Are we asking him? Are we as full as we want to be? It requires turning from the cisterns we've dug, the cisterns that our world is still saying, this will help, this will satisfy, come on. Turning to the one and only source of living water. Streams of living water will flow through. He said this meaning the Spirit, John chapter 7. You will be satisfied. I'll invite the team to come. I'll pray for you. So that wasn't that wasn't much of a greed sermon, was it? It was okay. Just all idolatry. Yeah. Um, so last week Lars came and invited us who were wanted to come for prayer and, and certainly confession. And it really was a broad call. I know with the focus and the topic on sexual morality, it was like, oh, I walk forward or not walk forward? I don't know. Um, so. Lars, did you want to come and call people to, who want to break down their idols of greed, too? <laughs> Consumerism? Who want to say to the, uh, 